0: Okay, good morning. Good morning. If you have a Bible, if you'd like to open up your Bible to John, be in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 12. you are looking at verses 12 to 26 here in a moment. As we come to this uh, Easter season, I kind of have... Three things I want to see accomplished in this sermon and in the ones to come. But a uh, big one I, I want to see, and I kind of pray for this every year when we get around Christmas, Easter, is to kill routine. Kill routine. I don't know about you, if you have like a movie that you often watch with your family, that you have everything memorized. We have a few of these with our kids. There are certain cartoon movies that I could like, I could close your eyes. I could tell you what the person is going to say. We know everything, but when we go to watch those movies, there's, not, there's less excitement <laughs> than the first time we watched them It's like because we know exactly what's going to happen. I think often we can get like that when it comes to the Easter season. We're like, yeah, okay, I've read the story. I know it's going to happen. It's routine. And friends, we serve the living God. There is no routine. This is the living word of God. And so even maybe as we come before familiar passages, as we think of of what happened as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, may we hear it again for the first time. May we destroy whatever type of like, oh, I'm just going through the motions routine as we come to Easter season again. So that is my prayer, that God would do that uh, in each one of us, that we would come with an amazement again uh, as, as we read kind of the Easter story big picture of what I want you to see uh, now, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. We're going to kind of start in Genesis, and I want to create this like really big picture in which we're going to see the Easter story framed. Next Sunday, we're going to kind of actually finish at the end of Revelation, talking about the garden redeemed. So I want us to get this big picture of what's going on when we zero in to the story in Easter. I want us to grasp that. Often, you know, in Timothy, we, we, we're in just a certain book, a certain context, and, it, and it's good as speaking to our, our local church. I want us to have this big picture of the story of the Bible as we think on the Easter, uh, the Easter season. And then again, I just again want us to think in marvel at how amazing this is. Maybe it's not a third point. Maybe it's the first one repeated. But just think, like, as snow melts at some point and turns to spring, (laughs) right? Like, what a time to celebrate. Yeah, we don't know when it's going to come. But uh, what an amazing time to celebrate what Jesus did. Like, when in the future, when actually new things start to grow, when the coldness, the deadness of winter moves on, what a time to celebrate Easter. Not to just run to the next thing, to the next person, uh, the next gathering together, family and friends. Praise the Lord we can do that. But ah, just to be amazed at that this season God set aside for us to remember uh, the most important, I think, thing that has happened in the history of the earth. And so I, I just pray that, we, that you're really going to see and be amazed. Also, Jesus' death on the cross was the plan. It wasn't plan B. This is what God had planned. And so even before we read the scripture, I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord's help as I preach this morning. If you'll bow with me. Oh God, I, I thank you for this opportunity to open up your word as we go into your scriptures, O oh Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would give clarity. give us open ears and open hearts. O oh Lord, I pray you destroy our just our routine of the, of the humdrum of, of another Easter season. O oh Lord, forgive us, that we can be so much more amazed that at other things in this world, at other stories that are so much less. So I pray you would speak through me this morning. Allow us to grasp the greater sense of how amazing this is, a greater understanding of how you planned it uh, from before really the foundation of the world and how important that is for our lives. I pray you would do this through me now uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If If you're in John chapter 12, if you want to stand with me, We're gonna be reading verses 12 to 26. John chapter 12, 12 to 26. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a a young donkey So the Pharisees said to one another, "'You see, you are gaining nothing. "'Look, the world has gone after him.'" Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.'" Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified.'" May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. I've titled this message, The Seed Born to Die. And I hope you'll see why here in a moment. Just as an introduction, I want to talk about first the garden cursed. If we're going to talk about garden redeemed, that's where you want to get to. Think about the garden cursed. If you you will, this is like a, a prelude to the message. Again, this is framing the message. This is big picture. If you want to turn, you just keep a finger in John 12 or mark it to Genesis. And I just want to give you this kind of really big picture of what's going on here. Genesis 1, we know as God created everything, spoken into his existence day by day, he kept saying, this is very good. This is very good. On the sixth day of creation... We have in Genesis 2, a seven to nine, which is actually the sixth day of creation kind of spanning out. It says this, the the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to see also in verses 15 to 17, continuing on, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so we see here that work is not, uh, is not this, this like dull thing that we need to do, but God actually called man to work the garden In verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Wow. So there's freedom, freedom to be in the garden, but freedom with God's parameters God had dictated, God created it. He decided how it was going to be done. If we continue on in chapter 2, we see then Eve was created. And Adam and Eve, they became one. God blessed the sanctity of marriage. Genesis 1, kind of the end of the six days creation. We know what does God say. This is very good. Every other day is good, it's good, it's good. To complete it, it is very good. This garden that he'd made, the people that he... Put there to work it, but we know the garden does not stay that way. It's going to read uh, for the point of context again from Genesis 3 now Genesis 3 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Bringing doubt to what God had said. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die, adding to God's word. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And of course, the rest of Scripture shows how horrible was this action that had just happened, what they had just done, but we see that sin uh, leads To uh, needing to try to cover it up. And they tried to cover it up themselves. They knew that they were naked now. And the knowledge that they gained actually didn't give them freedom, but actually sent them into bondage. In verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We just see here, like, the sin that they had acted in, one act of disobedience separated them from God. They want to run away from God. How horrible it was, and just kind of flipping the page, or in Genesis, we know that they're punished for their sin, for the woman, pain and childbearing, broken relationships between man and woman, for the man, the work of his hands. He's still the ground he has to work, but now the ground's going to have thorns and thistles. Not everything's going to come well. Things are going to break down. Things are not going to work out as as they want. And and Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden, a curse on the earth. Following them, death, decay, and destruction follows, a brokenness in this earth that we know all too well. But there is also something said to the serpent. I've mentioned this before. I want you to see this. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be one coming, a descendant of Eve, a seed of Eve, an offspring of Eve, who is going to crush the head of the snake. There's a promise of one to come, but who and when, when will things be made right again? You're kind of left asking that question. It's really the Old Testament starts to like work through and start to ask that question just really quickly thinking through this. Genesis 12, one to three, God focuses in on one man, Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I especially want you to hear that last part. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that one, that seed promised to come from Eve, we know is going to come through Abraham. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And we know it was actually through Jacob that this seed's going to come. He had 12 sons, became 12 tribes, And at the end of Jacob's life, in Genesis 49.10, he says this. He's speaking to all the different sons, all the tribes. He says about the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now we know, okay, someone from Abraham is going to, someone's going to come from the tribe of Judah, who's going to be the seed, who will crush the head of the snake. The Old Testament we see, if we went through the stories, the Old Testament, God preserves his people to bring about one, the one who's going to come crush the head of the snake, who's going to deal with the curse that Adam and Eve brought in. We see as, as David became king, and he was a man after God's own heart, 2 Samuel 7:13, God makes this promise to David. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now it's someone from Abraham, someone from the tribe of Judah, someone from the line of David is going to come. We still don't know who. The Old Testament prophets repeatedly spoke of one to come, the Messiah, descendant of David, one who is going to set things right, the one who is to fulfill Genesis 3.15, the one to redeem. That's what was lost in the garden, to deal with the brokenness, the curse that we all know all too well. And friends, just jumping to the New Testament, look how Matthew 1 1 starts. Look how the New Testament starts, just with the quick overview that I gave you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Immediately telling you, like, this is the one. But think about what context that Jesus entered into as we think about his birth. He came into. Uh, Israel, which was ruled, dominated by the Roman Empire. Though, so though they were in their land, they were not free. They had to pay taxation. They were, they were absolutely under Roman rule and couldn't do whatever they wanted to. They, they, they had this kind of like oppression over them. And so constantly there's this yearning, like where's the one to come? Is the Messiah going to come? Is he going to set us free? That's the kind of context that we have going into the New Testament. Where are we at in John's Gospel? As we go there here in a moment, we're at the end of Jesus' three and a half year ministry, three and a half years of of his teaching, healing the sick, walking on water, multiplying loaves and fish, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, If people were taking note. They were wondering, is this the one who's gonna come and set us free? At the same time, too, there was the, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they were feeling threatened that Jesus was going to take some of their power, and they wanted to put him to death. And it's at this moment that Jesus moves into Jerusalem, basically a place full of straw with fire about to hit it, like a powder keg, you, all these different things happening, and Jesus enters into Jerusalem. If you'll turn with me again to Genesis, or not Genesis, sorry, John Chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. I want you to see they were expecting a conquering king. That's what they were looking for. They were expecting a conquering king. At verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The next day, probably Monday, because 12 one, it says six days before the Passover. It would have been on a Sunday that had play, took place. So on a Monday, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast of the Passover, everyone who is, who is Jewish, not only in Israel, in Judea, in the surrounding area, also if they could travel from afar, would come and visit. Some estimates say a million people descending, some even much higher, just descending upon Jerusalem. This massive crowd of people who are there for the feast And when they heard about Jesus, they wanted to go and see him. They heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Friends, I want you to see this. Commentator Colin Cruz says this. The triumphal entry is one of the few events in Jesus' ministry that's recorded in all four gospels. It was a crucial event in which Jesus, by dramatic act, presented himself to Jerusalem as her king in accordance with prophecy. We see this in verse 13. So this crowd goes out to meet Jesus. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And these branches of palm trees, uh, we find out in, a, in an earlier period, the Maccabee periods, in like the third uh, century B.C., uh, they was used to kind of like display royalty and celebration. And so cutting down these, these branches, they were basically saying like, hey, here is our king. They become a national symbol, symbols of victory and kingship. And so by cutting the branches down, like they were like, yes, this is the king. And what verses did they quote as he came out, as he came before them? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26 which at that time had been understood as a messianic prophecy. They're like, here comes the Messiah. He's coming down, waving their branches, singing this, this psalm. And what else did they add to it, though? He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're like, here's the king. He's coming. We're welcoming our king. Even that term, Hosanna, had been come to know uh, it meant like save now. It was like a plea for action. Even as they're quoting Psalm 19, calling him the Messiah, it was also this plea like save us now. Do you see the whole pressure? Oh, here comes the King. He is going to set us free. That was the expectation that was being put upon Jesus. But interesting, this crowd who is celebrating him, who is calling him their King. Jesus knows not to trust these people. He said previous in John's Gospel. Or John wrote, John 2, verse 24 to 25, where Jesus had previously done miracles in Jerusalem. John says this, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Because we think about this, right? The same crowd that's saying, yes, Jesus, Messiah, Hosanna. He comes in the name of the Lord. He is our king. Five days later, it's the same crowd that's yelling, crucify him. Jesus didn't trust what the crowd was saying. But even in this, they're fulfilling prophecy. Look at me with verse 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Other, um, the other gospels talk more details. Where did Jesus get this donkey? John doesn't care. He's just like, there it is. Jesus sits in it. He's fulfilling what is written. It's been planned from beforehand. The prophets had already spoke of it. And what is, what is quoted there, it's a prophecy of Zechariah. Prophecy of Zechariah. I'm just going to read the next verse for you too. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what Jesus was fulfilling. The next verse, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the warhouse war horse from jerusalem the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth so interesting as jesus was fulfilling this there is the one who to come was to bring peace just in a way they didn't really grasp they actually probably wanted jesus to arrive in jerusalem excuse me on a war horse But still, they're like, okay, he's coming on a donkey, but they didn't really know why he was doing that. But like, hey, here is our king. Jesus was fulfilling scripture. But it says even in verse 16, John even confesses this, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and what had been done to him. This actually happens throughout uh, The New Testament, things that maybe for us were like, it seems so obvious, if you've grown up any time in the church, if you've read this story, but obvious to us, not obvious to them. Even in, in Luke's gospel, it's recorded in Luke chapter 18, 31 to 34, it says this, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus says this, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they shall kill him. On the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. That's what's happening again here. All these things happened. They're just, they're part of the crowd. They saw it happen. They did not understand until when? Until Jesus was glorified. I think, in a sense, they didn't understand really until the Holy Spirit came. John 16, verse 13, Jesus says this later on in this gospel When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, and whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. I think as this Holy Spirit came, then they were able to look back and look into the scripture and see, oh, how clearly he fulfilled these things. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, Jesus fulfilling things that were written. It wasn't an accident, but in fact, Jesus was fulfilling God's will as revealed in the scripture. So he's moving into Jerusalem. This crowd is around him. One of the crowds talked about verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continue to bear witness. Like that didn't happen that long chronologically from where we read here, where Lazarus came out of the dead. So there's still people who who saw Lazarus was dead. Then he was sitting with Jesus reclining at a meal. They're going around. This is the guy. This is the guy who raised Lazarus. How amazing is this? Gathering even a greater crowd. It says in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Is it, this is the guy? Let's go see that guy. And the signs are a big deal within the gospel of John. All the signs that Jesus does pointing that he is the true Messiah. Raising Lazarus was one of them. The last sign is the most shocking. They didn't see it coming. So there's this massive crowd gathering around him, bringing him in, calling them his king. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, that you are gaining nothing. They're talking with each other. Look, the world has gone after him. They were so scared already. They're losing power. They're like, everyone's going after him. Rome's going to come. They're not going to crush him. They're going to crush us. The Pharisees had already made a deal, a plan. John 11:53. 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're like, everyone's going after him. We need to do something about this. But I hope you can see this. I hope you can see the expectation. They wanted one who was going to overthrow Rome and lead them to lead them to freedom. They wanted one who was going to come and bring redemption to Israel. That's what they thought was happening. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. But they were they were gladly mistaken or they were greatly mistaken, sorry. But I I wonder about us too, if we can have a wrong view of Jesus, of what he came to do, of what he accomplished on the cross, what he calls us to do now. I pray, I hope that this passage can help give us clarity as we continue to work through it. So there's this expectation of a conquering king. As we look at verses 20 to 24, I want us to see the reality one born to die. Continuing on in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. It's like, well, that's that's an odd comment. But what it was, these Greeks who were to worship, they were God fearers. They were not yet circumcised, but had a reverence for God. Because they were not yet circumcised, they could only go into the temple of the Gentiles. So they could go to a certain extent to worship the Lord, but no further. And why are are they mentioned? Well, in verse 21, these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, why did they go and ask Philip? Why did they seek him out it doesn't say. I guess he has a, his, a Greek name. He was also, the town Bethsaida was near uh, Decapolis, which was a Greek town. Maybe they knew of him. Maybe it was his accent. They wanted access to Jesus more than just like a wave, a chat. They wanted to like sit down with him, interview him. That's what they were asking. And they didn't have access to Jesus, but they saw Philip, maybe knew of him. And so they're reaching out. The Greek-speaking people, the Gentiles came and asked. It's interesting. What does Philip do with this question? Philip went and told Andrew, one of the disciples, and Philip, or Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Like, why did he go and tell Andrew? Why didn't he just go to Jesus? One, maybe it was his friend there from the same town. One, also, uh, Andrew is kind of part of the inner circle. Well, you had Peter, James, and John. Andrew was Peter's brother. So maybe, hey, like, can you get us a connection? Can you get us in to talk to, G- talk to Peter, talk to Jesus, get us in? Maybe that was happening. But I think he's also a little bit confused. He's like, these Greeks, these Gentiles are coming and asking. They want to see Jesus. Surely both of them had remembered Matthew's gospel records when Jesus sends out the 12, sends out the 12 disciples. He says this, Matthew 10, 5 to 6, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was still ingrained in their head. They're like, okay, is that, is that still what we're doing? Are we not talking to Gentiles? But then they'd also heard other parts of Jesus' teaching. Even John records, John ten sixteen, where Jesus says this to his disciples, He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. This fold referring to Jews. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. They're like, "Is, is this time happening? Is it okay to bring these Gentiles, these Greeks, to Jesus? It's interesting. We never actually see that conversation take place, but just the question itself, going to Jesus, it sparks something, and I want you to see this. Verse 23, they go with the question. And Jesus answered them. The question about, like, can these Greeks, can these Gentiles come and see you, Jesus? The question is implied. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. It's interesting, just the questioner mentioned, of these Greeks, Gentiles, actually sparks a change of time in John's gospel. But if you're reading through John's gospel, if you're taking note, every time it talks about the hour previous, it's always the hour to come. John 2, I'll just give you a few examples. John 2, verse 4, where Jesus' mother asked him to change water to wine, and he says this, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's, it's not time. In John 7.30, there's a few more examples. I'll just give you this one. John 7.30, where Jesus appears, they want to arrest him. But John 7.30 says this. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And all of a sudden, there's this question of these, can these Greeks, can these Gentiles come and see you? And he says, my hour come. Has come, and every time after that in john 's gospel it 's like the hour is here, John 13 verse one. Now before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to the depart of this world and go to the Father and, and continues on, like why this question? Why does it spark such a change? D. A Carson says this, the hour is nothing less than the appointed time for Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation. In short, that's his glorification. That's what glorification's talking about. It's, it's so shocking. Leon Morris says this. In referring to his hour, there's no doubt that Jesus is referring to his death, but he speaks not of tragedy, but of triumph. And you think how shocking, maybe even for for Philip and Andrew and they're asking Jesus, can they come see you? The hour has come for my glorification. And maybe they're thinking, "Okay, it's time." They were still thinking Jesus is the conquering king. They're like, "Is he going to do this? Are we going to take back what is rightfully ours?" Not knowing when he's talking about glorification, he's talking about being hung on a cross. Not sitting on a throne. John 12, 32, Jesus says, and I, when I I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The way he was going to be glorified was a, a way different way than they were thinking. A way that actually the Greeks, the Gentiles, would be able to enter in and come amongst Jesus, come into God's presence. He would make a way by being hung on the cross. The hour had now come for him to be glorified. Jesus continues to give more clarity. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you. Anytime Jesus says this in John's gospel, it's like pay attention, listen up. Come on, eyes up here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies it bears much fruit. This is why Jesus came. This is why the son of God came down from heaven. Friends, we must always see, must always know the virgin birth in the manger we celebrate at Christmas leads to the cross. This was God's plan to bring redemption to deal with sin, the curse begun in the garden. This was his plan. Jesus knew this all along. Luke 9:51. Luke writes this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew his mission. He knew how he came. John 10, 11, he'd already mentioned it. John 10, 11, Jesus says this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Colin Cruz says this, just as a kernel of wheat dies when it's planted, but then produces many seeds as it sprouts, and the plant grows to maturity so Jesus would die. But the effects of his death would be a vast harvest harvest of people who through faith in him would find eternal life. Because what does it say here? If it dies, it bears much fruit. Friends, bearing much fruit is because... As we're going to look at on Friday, Jesus' payment for our sins, men and women brought into God's kingdom. And think about his fruit is that we would have life in him and then bear much fruit and give the Father glory. Again, this amazing thing, as he was lifted up, as he was glorified, not to a throne, but to a Roman cross. This was God's plan. The seed. The reason I use the seed is that term, in Genesis 3.15, an offspring of Eve, or the seed of Eve is gonna come, someone's gonna come and crush the head of a snake, this is him, the seed born to die. This didn't accidentally happen, it wasn't plan B, it was God's plan to redeem humanity. Actually from before the foundation of the world. As we read it, it's shocking, it takes a turn that we, maybe even if we know the story, we're like still, hey, they're they're saying, here's the king, he's coming. And then as we know, as we talk about on Friday, they're yelling, crucify him. But this was God's plan, one born to die. And Jesus continued to talk here. He has something for us to hear. I want us to see in verses 25 to 26 that actually the call to discipleship is a call to die. Discipleship is a call to die. Jesus says this, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Friends, you need to hear this. There's no such thing as just just add Jesus to your life. Wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, just slap a Jesus fish on your vehicle, carry on. That's not the gospel. I want you to see the call of discipleship here. I'm going to go to a few different passages. Luke chapter 14, 25 to 27. You're going to hear the same thing the same note Luke 14:25 to 27 Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot me be my disciple Now hear this, John MacArthur points this out. Hating one's life is a Semitic expression that has the connotation of giving preferences to one thing over another. It's not that you're like, oh, if I love Jesus, I need to actually hate my family. But it's so strong, this love, that you're choosing this above all else, that in comparison, it's like, hey, even your own life, Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But friends, in their day and age, they knew what this meant. The, cro- the cross, bearing your own cross means nothing else, but it's a way in which you die. That, that's the call to follow Jesus. That's the The cost is is everything. Luke continues, recording what Jesus said, verse 28, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. It's interesting. I don't know if, if you ever see a house incomplete and you mock the person who started it. But uh, that's what they're saying, like someone who sets out to do something. Say, you're like, you're going to buy a new car. Do you have the money to buy it? You're going to think through that. Can you complete this? And so just thinking about, in terms of following Jesus, what's the cost? The cost is like even hating your own life. The cost is bearing a cross and coming after him. If you do not do that, you cannot be his disciple. And just thinking about that, Jesus told a few parables in Matthew I want to bring your attention to. I think it just makes it so clear. What's the cost? We already know what it is, but this makes it even greater, greater clarity. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. He sells all that he has. Another parable right after. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he brought it. Friends, what is the the cost to follow Jesus? All that you have. Everything. Everything. But think about this. Following Jesus in this life will cost you everything, but in losing your life to follow Jesus, you gain everything. It's the paradox. If you're hearing this, if you're like, okay, I've, I've, I've kind of wanted to follow Jesus. I'm not sure. I just want you to know up front, it'll cost you everything that you have, everything laid down, every hopes, dreams, ambitions, money in the bank, spouse and you're like I'm laying this all before you Lord and now you're in charge that's the call to follow Jesus but friends in doing that it's the most precious thing to follow the prince of peace to find the one who can give you eternal life I would encourage you if you're hearing this come and follow Jesus give your life to following him friends again I just want to if we haven't got this already think about this Matthew sixteen twenty-four to 26 hearing the call of discipleship. Again, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Says it again and again. But here there's 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And hear this in verse 26 For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Like, what will it gain you if you gain this world, its riches, the success, the prominence, and everything, but you lose your soul? You get a bad deal. Christ is greater than everything. But hear this, Christ is greater than everything put together. Christ is greater. That's the amazing thing. This is the call that Jesus puts in front of us as a follower of him, going back there to John. Whoever loves his life, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Are we convinced? The apostle Paul was convinced in Philippians 3, 7 to 8, he lists all these things he had in Judaism, culturally, and he says this in Philippians 3:78, "Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ in comparison. The call of discipleship, again, a call to die to ourselves, our dreams, our ambitions, our kingdoms, and to follow him wherever he would call us, to be about him now, be about God's will, not our own. Jesus continues in, in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We must follow Jesus. Just think about this. In following Jesus, we want to be about the will of the Father. We want to be about God's will and not our own. And I just ask, as I'm talking about the cost of discipleship, that it will cost you everything. Is there something that's coming to mind? Something that you're like, I know I have this in my life. It's holding me back from following Jesus. Friends, I would just encourage you even now, like confess that before the Lord. Turn from that and, and run to Jesus Christ, whatever it is. So, in following Jesus, the will of the Father is the trump card over all else. In following Jesus, it's a life of, of service and humility, right? It's Jesus teaching John 13. As he got on his knees and washed the disciples' feet, looking to serve one another. Friends, if anyone's here and you're like, Yes, I've heard the call, I'm following Jesus, but you're not yet baptized. That's part of following Jesus where he went. Jesus was baptized. He calls all his followers to do that as well. If anyone here who hasn't been baptized, come talk to me after. Let's find a time. Let's get you baptized. Following Jesus, though, is also a call to suffer. It's also a call to suffer in this world. Jesus even promised that in John 16, 33 and talking to his disciples, he said, in the the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So that's, if it costs us everything, we gain everything, but we know in this world and following Jesus, we will have trials just because we're like, I want to follow him. I want to live for him. We will run into pain just because I want to live out God's will in my life. That's just a... We need to know that up front. In following Jesus, for some, it even leads to death. It has historically, it will continue on. I'm going to follow him wherever he would call me. And what does Jesus say? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Think about all the places that we can gain honor in this world that's just for a moment and gone. But in following Jesus Christ and dying to ourselves and living for him, we gain an honor from God the Father that will last forever, something of eternal worth and value. So I want us to see that the cost of following him, it is so great, but then the reward is eternal life. His abundant life now, walking with God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life to come. Friends, I hope you could see this morning just as the Son, Jesus Christ, the seed, the promised one, he, he came to die, to bring life. So we, as followers of him, are called to die, to live for Christ, to live in Christ, and find what life truly is an eternal life to come. If you want to bow with me, I'd like to close uh, this word in prayer. Oh, Lord. God, I pray, even as we, as we finish, that you would search our hearts. Show us if there's some area that we're, we're holding back, if there's some who are here who, who want to follow you, Lord. They sense that call. May you, you allow them to fix their eyes on you. Give them faith to trust in you, Lord. Expose these things in our lives, Lord, that we would die to ourselves and live for you. Thank you, O oh God, that you, uh, you're you faithful Lord Jesus, that you knew why you came and you came to die, but that we would have life. Oh Lord, I pray, seal this word in our hearts, continue to prepare our hearts for Good Friday, for Easter Sunday. May we draw closer to you in praise and worship and thanksgiving. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.